Good morning. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm the pastor here at Eastern Shore Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. You can learn more about our church by visiting our website, www.myesbc.net. Of course, if you would like to visit us on a Sunday morning, you'll see that we have life group classes or Sunday school classes that start at 9 a.m. And our service starts every Sunday at 1010 a.m. Come by and see us. God bless you. And I hope that you are motivated to look more like Jesus through today's podcast. I came in uh, early this week and asked Tony, said, Tony, is there anything special I need to know about the service this Sunday? And he said, nope, you preach Jesus and I'll sing Jesus. And uh, he's done his part, amen? Uh, this morning I, uh, I walked into our men's breakfast, so thank you to those guys who put that on and all those men that showed up. We appreciate that. It was good. Uh, if you missed it, then uh, I know they're going to do another one of those uh, shortly, so make sure you're there for that. But I walked in and uh, somebody said, hey, Josh, I thought you were preaching. I said, I am preaching. You know what they said next, right? Where's your suit? I said, well... <laughs> Thought I'd throw you off a little bit. See, here's the problem with the youth pastor wearing a suit on a Sunday morning. Everybody knows he's preaching. And then you know what happens after Sunday school? Everybody goes to an early lunch because the youth guy's preaching. And so this morning, I thought maybe I'd throw on a polo and some khaki pants and some youth pastor shoes, and, uh, and I'd, I'd come in here and, and trick you all a little bit to make sure you showed up for worship this morning. Things are not always what they seem. So this morning, if you saw me, you probably thought it was just another Sunday morning, Josh is here, maybe he'll read some scripture or something. But um, Jesus, in Luke chapter 11, is going to perform a miracle, but the miracle involves a lot more than meets the eye, so to speak. Jesus is going to cast out a demon, but the, the demon and the casting out of the demon and the miracle itself are not actually the point of what we're going to read this morning. But at at just face value, it seems like Jesus using his supernatural power to exercise a demon is, is really the point of the story, when in fact, Jesus uses the situation in order to do something incredible so that he can teach a very valuable lesson. And that's what I want us to look at this morning as we continue our series through Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11. And we're going to pick up in verse 14. We're going to be in verses 14 through 23. I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version. It should be there on the screen for you if you don't have your Bible. So let's read together in Luke chapter 11, verse 14. It says, Now he, being Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, but if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. 
But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let's pray this morning. Father, God, we thank you so much, God, for allowing us to gather together this morning to worship the name of Jesus. And God, as we look at your word this morning, God, I pray that we would do so uh, removed of all distractions. And God, we would be able to focus in on what it is that you have to say. God, I pray that you would remove me from the equation. And God, you speak through your word to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. I want us to look at this this story that takes place where Jesus performs an incredible, miraculous act. There's a demon who has possessed this man and caused the man to become mute. He can no longer talk. He can no longer speak. And Jesus is going to extract this demon from this man's body and cast it out. And we would think that that is the point that we are to marvel at the power of Jesus. And yet that's merely the beginning, the, the introductory to what we see happening here. Because what we're going to see is we see people questioning the motives of Jesus, who Jesus is, and then also demanding that Jesus, Jesus do even more to prove he is who he says he is. And then Jesus makes a couple of very profound statements. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want us to look at really three key things that the work of Jesus does. And so you'll see there in your worship guide, the work of Jesus, dot, dot, dot. And these things should follow. When we see Jesus working, when we experience the power of Jesus, these things naturally follow. And the first thing I want us to see is the work of Jesus provides clarity. The work of Jesus provides clarity clarity. If we'll read here again in verse 14, we're going to just unpack this passage of scripture. And I really want us to see as Jesus works and moves in us and around us, some things that naturally should happen in our own lives. So verse 14, it says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges." But, verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The work of Jesus is always meant to bring us into focus and never meant to confuse us. Scripture is in place to bring clarity, to bring our lives and to bring our purpose into focus. Scripture was never meant to confuse us. The work of Jesus is never meant to confuse There are some things that Jesus does in the New Testament that may seem a little bit ambiguous to us. They may seem confusing, yet Jesus was always very clearly pointing us in one singular direction. The problem is that as humans, sometimes we can't really understand what Jesus is doing because we're using a very human perspective to try to understand it. Yet, if if you go throughout Scripture, if you go throughout the New Testament, the miracles of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, Jesus is constantly working to point us in one singular direction. Think about the miracles of Jesus that you uh, can remember. Uh, Our students talked about miracles on Wednesday night. 
as we've gone through a series this summer about Jesus, who Jesus is and who Jesus isn't. And if you think about the miracles of Jesus, those that come to mind, really you can, you can really attribute three things that are always true about miracles. I won't test our students to see how well uh, they took notes, but I bet most of them could probably remember most of these. But if you think about the miracles of Jesus, the first thing miracles always do is they meet a deeper need. Think about that favorite story or favorite miracle you have. We spoke specifically about Mark chapter 2 on Wednesday night at Replicate. We talked about uh, those four friends who brought their paralyzed friend on the mat. Do you remember that? Jesus was teaching in Capernaum. The house was crowded. They brought their friend who was paralyzed. There was no room for them to get inside. And so what did they do? They cut a hole in the roof, lowered him down, and Jesus heals his sins. And then when challenged by the scribes and Pharisees, then shows them the power and authority he has by healing the man's physical infirmity. But the deeper need was what? Not that he was paralyzed, but that he was in need of forgiveness. And if you think about all of the miracles that Jesus does, you could, you could go throughout the Gospels. When Jesus performs a miracle, there's, there's a need met that on surface value, you know, that first glance, it seems that that is the need which Jesus is trying to meet. Jesus turns a few fish and a couple pieces of bread into enough to feed more than 5,000 people. Jesus wasn't just concerned about hunger that day. Jesus is always seeking to meet a deeper need. And here, it's no different. As Jesus is performing this miracle of exercising this demon from this man, he's not simply worried about the man's inability to communicate verbally. He's not even simply worried about the fact that there is a demon controlling this man. Jesus is setting up a very teachable moment. In fact, as you see the sermon title, Jesus is about to draw a very definitive line in the sand for the people gathered around him and for the church even today in 2019. But exercising the demon is what begins to lead him to his teachable moment. Jesus always seeks to meet a deeper need through his miracles. But also miracles offer hope to the hopeless. If you go back to that Mark chapter 2 account of the man being brought before Jesus on the mat and lowered through the roof, the man had been paralyzed for who knows how long. No doubt he had seen physicians in the area. He had probably tried to some kind of herbal remedy. I'm sure there are other things that he had attempted in order to help him to regain the movement in his body. Yet he was a man devoid of hope. You think about this man who was possessed by the demon here in Luke chapter 11. He was probably pretty hopeless. Miracles offer hope to the hopeless. And thirdly, what I really want us to build upon today is that the third thing that all miracles of Jesus have in common is that they all have the central purpose of glorifying God the Father. Jesus, in each and every instance in which he does a miracle or does something miraculous is pointing those around, those who are either being healed or those who are coming to watch him heal or those who are coming to try to trick him into saying or doing something that would break Levitical law. Each and every time, Jesus is pointing all of those people back to God the Father. And what he does in 
releasing this man of his demon possession and giving him back his voice is ultimately pointing all of those who are gathered around, including that man, back to God the Father. Again, clarity. And the point of clarity is that Jesus is always seeking to bring back into focus the will of the Father. Jesus never desired for anything that he did or anything he said to confuse us, to mislead us, to divide us, to, to, to disunify us. But always, always, always what Jesus is doing is bringing us back into focus what it is that the Father has in store for us. We just spent a couple weeks talking about the Lord's Prayer, right? And, and the very beginning of that, right? Our Father, right? And, and then it goes into let your will be done. And it's always that focus back on God the Father. So what we have here is that this, this story isn't merely about the demon possession. It isn't merely about the miracle. There's much more in play. In fact, Jesus knows what kind of reaction this miracle is going to elicit from those around him, right? We just read it a couple times. When the demon had gone out, the, the mute man spoke and the, the people marveled, right? They, they understood that something incredible had happened. But some of them said to him, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Jesus knew beforehand what the reaction was going to be. And we're going to talk more about that reaction in just a second. But the work of Jesus is always, always, always intentional and not reactionary. See, Jesus is healing this man. He's casting out this demon and not then caught off guard and reacts well to what the guys around him said. But Jesus knows how the people around him will react. And in part, what he does here in this man's life is meant to elicit that reaction so that he then can have conversation about it. Sometimes, church, Jesus, God, does things in our lives because he knows how we will respond, and it's a very teachable moment. You've done this as parents, right? There are times where you know how your children will react to something. And so perhaps you set them up a little bit. Anybody ever done this? Let's be honest, parents. Anybody ever known how your kids are going to react? So, yeah, you lay a little bit of a trap. It's okay. It's part of parenting, okay? I won't tell your, oh, it's uh, no children's church today, so they're listening. Sorry about that. All right? First Sunday of the month. Get you every time. Smith, I've never done that to you. I've never tried to trick you. Um, all right? But there, we know the nature and the character of our children or our friends or who are our students, if we're a teacher or whatever, and we know the response, Right? God even more so because he is all-knowing. And so he knows these guys' hearts. That's what scripture says. Knowing their hearts, knowing their thoughts, he then questions them. He knows their motives. He knows why they're there. He does the same thing in Mark chapter 2 that we talked about a second ago with the guy lowered in on the mat. Remember, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And then it says, knowing their thoughts, right? He knows what the scribes and Pharisees are, are thinking and saying across the room. And what was their problem? They said, you don't have the power to forgive sin. Only God has the power to do that. He says, okay, only God has that power. What's more difficult, forgiving his sins or telling him to get up and walk? Jesus is always intentional, never reactionary. 
And, and the point of what's happening here, I, I don't want us to, to miss this, is, is, is not simply just he's casting out demons and he does something really cool so we, we know how great he is. He's performed countless miracles before this. He'll perform countless miracles after this. And we should always be amazed by when Jesus does something incredible. We should. But the incredible here is meant to set up what's happening directly after this. And the point that he gets to here, okay, in uh, Luke chapter 11 is in verse 20. But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus is is giving a very bold and declarative statement to those around him that the kingdom of God has come. If you um, get into language or English and, and that, that really uh, tickles your fancy, uh, this in the Greek is an aggressive aorist verb. I know you're super excited to know that. But simply what it means is that this has literally happened at this point. This is the beginning point. Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God. See, there's a lot of debate here about when the kingdom of God, when we're talking about that happening. Is it something that comes in the future uh, with revelation, with the second coming? Is it something that had already happened? What Jesus is saying here as he says this is that I am bringing in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come and it has come now. And so when we talk about Jesus kind of drawing this line in the sand, what Jesus is going to tell these guys here at the very end of this uh, passage in verse 23 is that you can either be with me or you are against me, which is very hard language for us to attach to Jesus, but he said it. And and there's there's a reason that he says it. These, these men are accusing Jesus, and we'll talk about this in a second in more detail, of being Satan himself, working for Satan, he, casting out demons in the name of Satan. And Jesus says, be very careful, for the kingdom of God has come, and the time for you to decide where you stand has also come with it. Which should... Be comforting to us that the kingdom of God has come here on earth, but should also should alarm us a little bit. It should have alarmed these men who were standing there accusing him of being Satan. He says, hey, the kingdom of God has come here on earth, and it is time for you to decide where you stand. The work of Jesus provides clarity. It is meant to draw a clear and defining Line. And that's where Jesus gets here as he says the kingdom of God has come. The second thing that the work of Jesus does, it provides clarity. It provides understanding for us as to who God is, who Jesus is, and what the will of God is. And that should lead us to life change. should lead us to change. The work of Jesus provides clarity resulting in change. But he, knowing in their hearts, it's kind of a scary thing, right? Jesus knowing your heart. I know it's terrifying for me to think of sometimes that Jesus knows my heart. I I may be on my own on this, but there are sometimes there are things in my heart that are not very good. Anybody else? Okay, yeah, all right, good. There's two or three of y'all that are with me, okay, comforting. Jesus knows our hearts. It's It's a truth that we've learned very early on in life, that that Jesus knows our hearts. But Jesus knows and discerns what is in the hearts and minds of these men. 
the Pharisees, these scribes, these guys gathered around, they witnessed the miracle. In fact, it says not only did they witness the miracle, but they marveled at the miracle. They marveled at what Jesus had done. But the majesty and the wonder of what Messiah, the anointed one, had done, the miraculous event that they had just witnessed gets tossed aside when these men have to choose between the majesty and wonder of Jesus and themselves. Isn't it interesting that they, they see this happen, right? they see Jesus pull a demon out of a human being, and the man can't speak, and then Jesus lays his hands on him, the demon leaves his body, and then suddenly the man can't speak, and it says they all marveled. They were all amazed. There's no doubt that a miracle happened. They all agreed to that. Not only did they say, oh yeah, he did something cool, they marveled at it, but then the next thing out of their mouth and in their heart, oh well, he did that in the name of Satan. You see, it's very possible, church, to witness the majesty and the splendor and the wonder of who Jesus is without your heart ever being changed. And if it was possible for individuals who are face-to-face with God in the flesh to have that happen to them, it's very possible for that to happen to us. Did you know that? You see, these, these men literally saw a demon flee a human being. And they were amazed. And then 30 seconds later, they weren't so amazed. They said, this has got to be Satan doing this. And then it says, others of them said, we want another sign. We want another wonder. Anybody can cast out one demon. Do something else. These are the same guys that would have seen him turn the, the bread and the fish into food to feed thousands. The same guys that saw him heal lepers, paralyze people. They knew that he raised Lazarus from the dead. They saw Jesus work over and over and over and over, yet it never resulted in a change of heart. And church, if we're not careful, we will do the same. We will come in here week after week after week, and we'll sing the name of Jesus, and we'll sing the name of Jesus, and we'll see all that Jesus has done, and we'll have all of these things in our lives that Jesus has done, and yet our hearts will never change. And it may look a little, a little more subtle than we think Jesus is casting demons out in the name of Satan. It may look a little more subtle than that. But we are in such grave danger of sitting here and saying, Jesus, do all the cool stuff. Do all the cool stuff. Appreciate you dying for me and coming back to life. I will accept that. Yet our hearts and our lives never being changed. And it's the real danger. And that is what Jesus is getting at here. It's possible to marvel at the work of Jesus without being changed by Jesus. See, there's this passage that we all learned very early on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You probably learned it, only begotten son, right? His only son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? The real key word there is this little word called believe. Because in scripture, this word believe means more than just accepting facts, 
See, the way it's used in the New Testament, belief always requires an action as a result of it. Biblical belief is not merely seeing or reading something and acknowledging it, but real belief leads us somewhere. You can think about it um, just in your day-to-day life. How many of you um, in your line of work have people that work for you? You have employees that are under you. Anybody have employees that are under you? All right. How many of you, it's difficult sometimes for you to trust an employee to do something that you give? Anybody ever have a a difficult time? Like there's certain things that you want done that you need done. All right. Well, or moms, right? You're, you're, You're entrusting your kids to do something, to clean something the way that mama cleans it, right? It never gets clean the way mom cleans it. Am I right? Okay. And so it, this is, this is what belief looks like. We, we understand it when it comes to day-to-day activity, right? I trust this person to do this, right? I trust this employee to carry out this task. Or I trust my child to go and do this. Or I trust my husband, right? This is probably an even better example because y'all, y'all don't trust us to do anything, right? But you, you, trust, you trust our husband to, to do this. But you know that it's not going to get done the way that you want it done. Right? That's not real trust. That's not real faith. That's you turning over a task because you know you've you got to have somebody get it done. Right? If we really believe, if we really trust, then we're, we're just going to allow that person to go and do it, and we're going to have faith, we're going to have trust that they are going to do it and do it well. You, you can think about other examples. Right? We can, we can use very basic examples about, about how these things happen. But if we're an employee or we're a mom or we're a wife or we're a husband or, or we're a father or whatever we are, and we assign somebody, somebody something to do, and then we either don't think they're going to do it the way we want to do it or we have to come and micromanage how they do every little thing, we didn't actually have trust or faith in that person, right? We gave them a task, and now we've got to go follow behind them to make sure they did it well. It's human nature, right? And so faith, real biblical faith, okay, what it looks like is we trust God so much that our lives change as a result of it. It's not, it's not hey, God, we believe that you sent Jesus and that he's going to save my sins and now nothing changes about my life. See, real belief, real faith always requires action. Biblical faith mandates action. If, if I told you to go and to, uh, to sit in that pew, right, it's going to hold you up. And you say, yeah, I know it's going to hold me up. I say, well, go sit in it. it well, I'm not, Fourth eh. of July, ate a little extra barbecue, eh. Right? You don't have faith in the pew, right? It's, a, it's, a very, it's an age-old example of, of sitting in a chair and having faith. You just sit down thinking and knowing that that chair, that pew is going to hold you up each and every time. But if you say you have faith in it, but you're unwilling to test out that faith by sitting in it, then you don't have faith. You just said you did. And that's what this comes down to. Uh, some guy in the Bible said it like this. Faith without works is dead. It's not faith. And there's no argument about that. What it means is that real, authentic, biblical faith or belief, when we talk about John 3.16, real belief, real faith always leads to tangible results. So these guys gathered around Jesus. They believed that he had power. They saw it. They marveled at it. But it didn't change them. And the question that, that I have to ask myself and that we have to ask ourselves is, 
Has our encounter with the power, the work of Jesus, has it changed us? Does the belief that we have in Jesus, does it manifest itself out in how we live our lives? The work of Jesus provides clarity that results in life change, but it also leads to Christ-centeredness, to Christ-centeredness. If you read in verses 21 through 23 here, Verses 21 through 23. It says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is following up on this illustration that he gave. These, these guys responded to him, and they, and they said, well, um, how do we know that, that you're not uh, Beelzebul? And, and if you're reading in your translations, it may say Beelzebub, right? Does anybody have that in there? Well, Beelzebub, it actually, that word comes from the Latin. And so when it was translated into your modern translations, it was translating from the Latin Vulgate, which was an early translation. But all of the original or closest to original Greek manuscripts we have has Beelzebul. So if there's confusion there, um, it's just a matter of where it was translated, from the Greek or from the Latin. So Beelzebul, and essentially what it means is master of the house is the most literal translation, or uh, the, the king of demons, the one that is in charge of the demons. And so these guys, they say, you are casting out in in the name of Satan or in the name of this chief of demons. And Jesus says that doesn't even make any sense, right? Why would someone who is in charge of demons be casting demons out? The point of the one that's in charge of demons is to put the demons in. And so Jesus very logically refutes these claims. But he, he builds on that. He, he uses this example of a house divided against itself uh, will fall every time, and a kingdom that's divided will fall uh, because it doesn't make any sense for the chief of demons to cast out demons, right? So he makes that logical point, but then he goes in uh, even further, and he uses this example of, of someone who has guarded his house very well has built up his house and guards it. Verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes it, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides that line. And so in this little analogy, Satan um, is the one that has guarded his house. It could even be used to describe us. We guard ourselves. We guard our own hearts. But Jesus is stronger and comes in and takes away the armor with which we once so dearly held tight. And then Jesus does something interesting here in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you uh, have studied history at all or even just taken a history class, you know that, that lines are very important in history. In fact, it's how we measure time in our culture or Western civilization, a, a linear timeline, right, moving from left to, to right. I know this is my right and my left, but I was trying to help it for you. I know I'm from Mississippi, but we do know left and right. I know everybody loves a good Mississippi joke. 
I was going to make an Arkansas joke, but there's some people in here from Arkansas, and they'd get upset. So. Lines in history. You think about the Mason-Dixon line, right? What comes to mind when you think about the Mason-Dixon line? The Civil War for most of us, right? It was what divided slave and free states, right? That it was the border originally between Pennsylvania and Maryland, right? The, the, the line that separated. And then we kind of drew that line out to the west to really separate the north and the south. Um, and it really was in place leading up to the Missouri Compromise of, of 1820, which was very important in, in us determining what sl- uh, states were slave states and what states were free states. Anything about the, the 38th parallel in the mid-20th century, which divided North and South Korea ultimately? Before that, it really divided uh, U.S.-controlled South Korea and Soviet or communist-controlled North Korea. And in 1950, in June of 1950, that 38th parallel was crossed by the Soviet-backed North Korean military into South Korea, which led to international conflict. And Jesus draws kind of a proverbial line in the sand here where he says, if you are with me, then stand with me. But if you're not with me, the kingdom of God has come. And it's it's time to make a decision. See, just two chapters before this, we have this, this incredible little line that gets tossed aside sometimes. Very subtle, where it says that Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem. And it's in this moment, in the midst of Jesus' teaching and his ministry, in which suddenly, not only his direction geographically changes, but his, his purpose doesn't change, but it becomes clear. And Jesus now making his way directionally, geographically toward Jerusalem, but more importantly, toward what awaits him in Jerusalem, which is crucifixion, death on behalf of the world. And when we see Jesus at this point, Jesus' purpose, again, it hasn't changed, but it has become more deliberate, more focused, and more intentional. And this line has been drawn in the sand. And he says that the strong man holds on to all of his armor and he protects himself and he builds up this shelter around himself. But the one who's stronger comes and takes control and removes what once held that person back or what that person found security in. He says, the choice is yours today. Which side of this line will you stand on? There's a movie uh, that came out several years ago. We have a clip from it. Um, And and the movie's called Miracle. Um, It's not about the miracles of Jesus. It's about the miracle on ice, the 1980 U.S. men's hockey team, which, if you recall, famously defeated the then-Soviet Union in uh, in the medal rounds. It wasn't in the gold medal game. It was in a game before that. But this Soviet team had won, I think, four straight gold medals. So over a 16-year span now, they had dominated men's ice hockey. And they had all professional players on their team, and the U.S. came to the Olympic Games 1980 in Lake Placid and, um, with amateur players, players that had played college hockey. And they were overwhelming underdogs. 
everyone expected the Soviet team to finish first, Canadian team to finish second, and the U.S. team was not even on the radar. In this clip, um, you're going to see uh, Kurt Russell playing uh, Coach Herb Brooks um, in, a, in a, a little bit of a, a situation right after the U.S. has lost a game early on in those Olympics. So let's watch this clip together. playing this way, you won't beat anybody who's even good, let alone great. You want to make this team, and you better start playing at a level that's going to force me to keep you here. Again. Hey, we're getting out of here. <coughs> hey, where you going? Back on the line. Again. Send them. You gonna be the first one to quit on me? How about you, OC? You ready to go down? Uh, I think I got my money on you for a quota. Of course, you got a hot date in about an hour, but you're not looking too good for that right about now, are you? Send them. Again. be a team of common men because common men go nowhere you have to be uncommon again Herb this has gone on long enough everybody on that line somebody's going to get hurt everybody get on that line hey Again. Again. Herb. Come on, Craig, blow the whistle. Again. Michael Ruzioni! Went through Massachusetts. Who do you play for? I play for the United States of America. That's all, gentlemen. The 
U.S. men's team had come out and they had lost the game pretty badly. It was pretty embarrassing. And so Coach Brooks makes them line up and they're skating back and forth across the rink for hours after practice. But the beginning of that kind of punishment, he asked the hockey players to tell them who they were and who they played for. And each player stated their name and what college they played for. And it came to Coach Brooks' attention that it was just a bunch of guys playing for themselves, looking after their own interests. And as a result, they had been handed a very embarrassing defeat. And so after all of those back and forth across the skating rink, these guys are obviously, they're, they're falling down, they're vomiting, they're dehydrated, ready to quit. And Coach Brooks keeps sending them and keeps sending them and keeps sending them because he wants them to understand this one central point. Finally, Michael Ruzioni stops and says his name. He's from Massachusetts. And you hear Coach Brooks, if you couldn't hear very well, he says, and who do you play for? And for the very first time, I played for the United States of America. What Jesus does here is something very similar where he says, you have been looking after yourselves. You have been like the guy with the suit of armor protecting everything that makes you comfortable. And Jesus says, you are either with me or you are for yourself. And it's a very clear line that's drawn some 2,000 years ago. Yet it's the same line that remains today, church. Are we more concerned with ourselves and our suits of armor that we're protecting, our financial status, our security, our pride, our comfort, our education, our political ideology, Or are we about Jesus? Because so often times those things meet at a head where we have to choose one or the other. And when we do, are we playing for Jesus or are we playing for ourselves? All of this that happens the demon being cast out, the man giving his voice back, the questions and the, the accusations, they're, they're all coming to a head at this point where Jesus says, it is time for you to choose me, the kingdom of God, or to choose self. And which will you choose? And not, and not some fabricated, created version of Jesus, but biblical, authentic Jesus. And church, my question for myself today, my question for all of us today in 2019 in Daphne, Alabama, will we choose Jesus or will we choose self? Jesus had set his face to Jerusalem and he is en route to go and to die an agonizing death on a cross 
for the people gathered in this story, for the mute man who is demon-possessed, for those who marvel at the wondrous works of Jesus, for those who accuse him of being the chief of demons, for you and for me. And for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to die and raised him up to defeat sin and death. Do you believe that God did that through Jesus? And if you do, does your life mirror that belief? Does mine? Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you so much, God, for this story, this account. God, where a man is healed of a possession of a demon. God, we gather here, God, in total belief that you can do all things, that you are all powerful. You have the power over Satan and his armies. God, you have the power over our lives. God, I pray that in that belief comes a desire for us to live Christ-centered lives, Christ-focused lives. God, I pray if there's anyone in here, God, who has never met with you face-to-face and been changed, God, by the majesty and wonder, the grace of Jesus, God, that that would take place this morning. God, I pray that if we have been living a life where we claim to believe in you, God, but there has been, God, no outpouring of that in our lives, God, that today would be the day. We said no more talking about Jesus, God, but we want to live like Jesus. God, I pray that you would move in this place this morning, God, that we would respond. God, we ask all these things. Thanks again for tuning in to today's podcast, and we hope to see you again on Sunday morning. Of course, you can also watch our services live on YouTube. Simply search Eastern Shore Baptist Church on YouTube, and at 10.05, our broadcast starts. We hope to see you soon. God bless you. And again, visit our website, www.myesbc.net. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.